Father, we thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit. We thank you that he is the author of Scripture. He is the teacher of Scripture. He is the illuminator of history. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts as we come to uh, this point tonight of um, interacting with the worlds and the outside view of our faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're stopping our forward progress through the uh, Christology tonight to deal with an article that appeared in U.S. News and World Report. Um, the, uh, I forgot what date it was, October 25th issue. And I'd like to read some sections of this uh, article because this would normally be viewed, and by most readers, uh, it's, it's not a virally anti-Christian article. In fact, some people would argue that um, it is a, uh, it's friendly. It's a friendly article. And um, the uh, title, feature story on the front page, uh, Is the Bible True? A artistic rendition of Adam and Eve. Um, and I want to take this time to go through this because We've, most of you have been with us on Thursday nights for a number of years. Um, let me get my little pencils here without destroying the microphone. And um, the, uh, I hope that as we go through this tonight, you'll see one reason why I set up this framework the way I did, and why I, be, I really believe this is a way of approaching Scripture that's quite important for us, um, particularly in the 20th century and now the 21st century. Um, so I want, and feel free to interact tonight, because I'm going to kind of throw out questions for responses. Um, and some of this, there won't be, quote, the right answer, but we're dealing with an approach. Um, this article would represent, probably on the spectrum of, from love to hate, um, it represents a somewhat lukewarm view of Christianity. Um, this would be the kind of thing, I believe, that most people on the street would readily accept. So I think it's important that we interact with it and begin to draw upon some of the elements that we've been studying in the framework series. Um, this surely is the environment in which we live if we're going to witness for Christ, if we're going to discuss the gospel, if we're going to um, stand, faith in our, stand fast in our personal faith, uh, unless we're obscurantists, uh, we have to deal with this sort of thing. So I'm going to start off um, noting a few things, and hopefully, not that I have all the answers as far as methodology goes here, but <clears throat> I'd like maybe to, if you take notes tonight, um, just notice some of the things, how we get at this kind of thing, how we respond to it. We just don't just sit there and read it and take it in and say, I believe that or I don't believe that. It's not that simple. We want to interact with it. So, first thing... The, uh, I'll read the front page of it. Anybody see this article, by the way? That, um, yeah, okay, quite some of you have seen it. Um, here's the title. Um, and and let's, see, let's just look at the title a moment. 
Now let's think about what we've been talking about in the framework series. Um, the title is, Is the Bible True? And it has a number of uh, subtitles that the uh, editors have put onto the article. But it's a typical, typical question. And I want to look at this. Is the Bible true? Then there's a sub-article, a sub-title under it. New discoveries offer surprising support for key moments in the scriptures. Read that again. New discoveries offer surprising support for key moments in the scriptures. And then you open the magazine and you turn over to the article and um, there's another little subtitle there. Is the Bible true? Main title repeated. This time the sub-article said, Extraordinary Insights from Archaeology and History. Well, when we started this framework, remember that I kept saying what about questions? What do we say about questions? You don't buy into the question without first thinking whether the question's already loaded. And the classic being uh, the, the rejoinder, someone says, well, how many times last week did you beat your wife? I mean, it's a loaded question. Uh, you can't get out of the question because the question has already set up the discussion. And <clears throat> one of the things that you want to notice here uh, about this is that there's a lot of stuff right here in this question. Anybody see some of it? How's this, how's this, I mean, it looks like a very innocent question, and, and a lot of people mean it innocently. It's not that there's a big, big line of deceit here going on. It's just that we want to be careful when we get into this kind of a thing, uh, because remember, the world system out there is, is a playground of Satan, and he's very brilliant and can ask some very brilliant questions. But what do you notice about this question? Anybody catch something about this question? Yes, yeah. Mr. Shore. Okay. One of the obvious things is that the Bible may or may not be true, and we're going to have to find out whether it is. That seems to imply that we have some sort of a neutrality here going on, that we're all sitting on neutral ground, and now we are going to decide whether or not the Bible is true. Right? Isn't that what the question is? Okay. Now, what event in Scripture that we've studied in the framework does this remind you of? The Garden of Eden. And so let's turn there for a moment. Let's turn to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. And please, um, 
don't misinterpret the spirit in which this, some of this criticism tonight is offered. I'm not here to smash somebody that asked that question because people can genuinely ask that question and in, in a loving, gracious way. We just have to be sure that we don't buy into things and allow them to buy into things. It's like you're on a, on a, rifle, uh, a lifeboat and somebody's drowning and you may have compassion and concern for them, but in the act of trying to save them, you don't want to destroy yourself because if you did, you'd go in the water and then both, now we've got two people drowning instead of one. So that's the picture you have here. So we're not trying to be nasty, we're not trying to be picky, but we are trying to be discerning. So let's look at the text in Genesis 3 when Satan comes to Eve. Um, verse 1 of chapter 3. He said to the woman, Has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And, of course, we know that this, that this course goes on. He approaches with a question. Questions are very powerful. They're good teaching tools. Um, they're, in some sense, less confrontational than an affirmative sentence. To ask a question, you, you know, you're deferring to someone else, so in one way you're complimenting their ability to respond to you. You're, you're being in conversation. Um, but in this case, Satan is saying... Has God said, you shall not eat of the tree? And then the woman slightly misquotes the thing, verses 2 and 3. And she concludes, however, in verse 3, with the statement, what did God tell her? If you're going to eat, what's going to happen? You're going to die. Now in verse 4, Satan says, you will not die. So now here's Eve... who now is in the middle of two propositions. God says, you will die. Satan says, you will not die. And Eve is going to determine which one is true. Eve is going to undertake an investigation. Eve is going to say to herself that she has within her power the capacity to decide what is true and what is false. I've drawn this deliberately horizontally here. Those of you who were here when we worked through this, what has implicitly occurred right away in this picture? Already something's wrong. We've put the two statements as though both those propositions, you will die, you will not die, are equal and opposite, haven't we? But in fact, are they? Is it true or is it not true? This is a proposition that comes from God. This is a proposition that comes from the creature. Can those two propositions be rightly equated as the level of authority? Well, no, they can't. But you see, this comes so fast. And this is why, this is how Satan trips us up in our minds. Because 90% of the Christian battle is right up here. It's not with the externals. <clears throat> it's right here. And when we get off track, I mean, Satan has a thousand ways of getting us all out of fellowship, off track, screwed up. 
And one of his favorites is to mask the issue and push us over here and get us, you know, it's like the magician. You know, a good magician is a sleight of hand artist. They always get your attention in the wrong place while they're doing something else. And that's exactly how Satan operates. We just don't see the thing. We get deflected. We get distracted. And we're looking at the wrong place. See, Eve was concerned with a question, the dialogue here, and immediately she starts rolling on as though these two statements are equal and opposite. But the moment she did that, what was she doing for herself as far as authority goes? She relegates to herself the authority to decide whether God is correct or he isn't, whether Satan is correct or he isn't. So right now, in this position, Eve has it set up so that man determines what is true and what is false. But the problem, we're going we're to get into some problems with that. Just keep that in mind, <clears throat> because this is a classic error that man makes. And it's a version of what we've drawn before. In this case of this article we're studying tonight, the object of discussion is the Bible. And what we've said is no matter what the topic is, whether it's the Bible, marriage, work, politics, or what, we all come to an issue and envelop that issue with a frame of reference, with a framework of thinking. And if, for example, we throw out an evidence, and we used this illustration before, we'll use it again in our series when we deal with the resurrection of Christ, people like, for example, to promote, oh, look at the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. Now, a clever unbeliever could accept those evidences for the resurrection of Jesus and still reject the faith in the gospel. How could he do that? By simply saying, oh, gee, Jesus must have risen from the dead. Now, strange things happen in the universe. This is just one of them. This is a contingent universe, you know. So, what, what's happened now? All your evidences that were piled on to make that point that Jesus rose from the dead, suddenly, it's like somebody pulled a switch and all your work went to nothing. Just went right into a big hopper. Because it was absorbed and it was outmaneuvered. And what we call this is, this is strategic envelopment. And there's a game being played here all the time. It's going on in our heads. No matter what the issue is, no matter what the pressure point is, no matter what the discussion is, the issue is where, who's doing the strategic envelopment. Is the scripture, is God's word, Able to, super, uh, able to come around this and interpret this situation? Or unconsciously and half-heartedly are we passive spiritually and we're allowing the world system to come in here and interpret this whole issue in this larger apostate, unbelieving frame of reference. So, right from the start, when we read the article, we say, is the Bible true? And underneath... Remember I said there was an, a sub-article, sub-stent, right underneath the title here. It says, New discoveries offer surprising support for key moments in the scriptures. So, the, the methodology of the question, how are we going to answer this? We're going to answer the question whether the Bible is true by new discoveries. In other words, we're going to go out into the world and we're going to do experiments. 
we're going to see, walk the length and the height and the depth of the universe and see if we can spot evidence whether or not the scriptures are true. Just like Eve. If I eat of the tree, then I can tell which statement is correct. But the dilemma is, if I ate of the tree, what have I already done? I've already disobeyed God. So God deliberately set up the thing in the garden so there was only one way for Eve. Could Eve rightfully have solved the dilemma here without disobeying God? Yes, she could have. But how would she have done that? She would have had to obey God. Well, then you say, yeah, but then she couldn't ever tell what would happen if she disobeyed God. Well, that's right. She couldn't tell what had happened. She would have to take by faith the fact that if she had disobeyed God, what would happen? She'd die. Now, how was she doing that? She was taking it by faith. And when we take it by faith, whose authority are we automatically thereby accepting? The author of Scripture. So we're back to an authority issue. Whose authority are we going to have? Eve took it out of God's hands and decided she would be the final arbiter of truth and reason. Okay, so much for that. Now, on, this, on the inside, we have, is the Bible true? And we have extraordinary insights from archaeology and history. So now already the authors have set us up because they're going to tell us, and they're announcing it right here, the method they're going to use to answer the question. The method is going to be discoveries, archaeology, and history. Well, let's diagram that one for a moment. You see, we haven't even read the article yet. And this is the kind of things you want to learn to do. You don't have to read 800 pages here. Just look at the big idea. If there's a good article and a good writer, and this is why you really want to read good... If you ever read unbelievers, read good ones that are literary, uh, are literary people that write well. I mean, people that write for Time and Newsweek are good writers. They wouldn't be on the staffs if they, if they weren't. So here we have them coming in and they're saying to us that we're going to answer the question, is the Bible true? Is the Bible true? And we're going to answer it by means of discoveries. In particular, we're going to look at history and archaeology. That's the method. Okay? Now think of what I just showed you about strategic development. What's going on here? If we were to write this diagram, what's going on? Here's the Bible. Right? And what is it being enveloped by? History and archaeology. Well, that's, that's... You say, well, what's wrong with history and archaeology? Well, let's say. If history and archaeology have developed by themselves independently of Scripture, now what are we working with? Let me give you an example. You'll see this in the article. In the article, they're going to say, gee, you know, we thought that David was a mythological figure. Well, why would you think David was a mythological figure? Well, it's in the Bible. Yeah, but why, if it's in the Bible... Is, are you considering it a mythological figure? Why do you a priori say anything in the Bible? Well, th that's the question. The question is whether the Bible is true or not. We've got to go outside of the Bible to look at the Bible. 
But if we go outside of the Bible and we rely upon a history and an archaeological frame of reference that itself has from the very start rejected the authority of Scripture, then how are we going to learn about the Bible's authority by looking at an anti-authority frame of reference? So, let me go through and I'll, re I'll read some of the sentences so you can catch the flavor of this article. And like I said, you can look at this article and you'll say the ninth people out of ten that read this thing will classify, even believers, will classify this article as a friendly article. And I'm not saying, I mean, compared to a lot of the virulent stuff you read, this guy is at least gracious, put it that way. The article starts out in a nice way. It says, The workaday was nearly over for the team of archaeologists excavating the ruins of the ancient Israelite city of Dan in Upper Galilee, led by Avriam Biran of Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem. The group had been toiling since early morning, sifting debris in a stone-paved plaza outside what had been the city's main gate. Now the fierce afternoon sun was turning the stoneworks into a reflective oven. Gila Cook, the team's supervisor, was about to take a break when something caught her eye an unusual shadow in the portion of a recently exposed wall along the east side of the plaza. Moving closer, she discovered a flattened basalt stone protruding from the ground with what appeared to be Aramaic letters etched into its smooth surface. She called Biran over for a look. As the veteran archaeologist knelt to examine the stone, his eyes widened. Oh, my God, he exclaimed. We have an inscription. In an instant, Biran knew that they had stumbled upon a rare treasure. The basalt stone was quickly identified as part of a shattered monument or stele from the 9th century B.C. and apparently commemorating a military victory of the king of Damascus over two enemies. One foe, the fragment identified as, quote, the king of Israel, and the other was, quote, the house of David. The reference to David was a historical bombshell. Never before had the familiar name of Judah's ancient warrior king, a central figure of the Hebrew Bible, and according to Christian scripture, an ancestor of Jesus, been found in the records of antiquity outside the pages of scripture. Skeptics had long seized upon the fact to argue that David was a mere legend invented by Hebrew scribes during or shortly after Israel's Babylonian exile, 500 years before the birth of Christ. Now listen to this next sentence. Listen to the next sentence and see what it says. Now, at last, there was material evidence. An inscription written not by Hebrew scribes, but by an enemy of the Israelites, a little more than a century after David's presumptive, uh, presumptive lifetime. It seemed to be a clear corroboration of the existence of King David's dynasty and, by implication, of David himself. Now, the author exclaims, hear it? Now we have material evidence. What's wrong with that? The scriptures aren't material evidence? Why is there this predisposition to discard the scriptures themselves as material evidence, hold it in abeyance, and say, well, we're not going to believe that now until we come over here. Oh, I can believe that part of the scripture because over here I got an inscription. Whose authority is going? What's, what's the authority going on here now? We're believing the scripture if and only if what? If and only if it's confirmed, quote, by our human discoveries. 
okay? And then it goes on to talk about the, the problem of silence, and, and it says there's so much uh, history is, is really largely silent about the Exodus and about a lot about the patriarchal uh, evidences. Then over on the, one of the last pages, you, you read this statement. Um, talking, it comes forward in time, says, looks at the evidence of the Sea Peoples, the evidence of David, and comes forward to the time just uh, at the end of the Old Testament. And it says, um, the Bible... Uh, it had several references of vocabulary like Goliath's spear is called the weaver's beam and so on and then it says once again the Bible and archaeology are in agreement once again the Bible and archaeology are in agreement so let's, let's think about a diagram those of you who have the notes that we covered last year in the life of Christ if you'll turn back there's a, and for those of you who don't I'll show you what the diagram is if you'll go back and look at the diagram on page 53 of the notes, you'll remember that we drew something like this. If you go to college, any college class today, if you go to any uh, university, the picture of the New Testament you get looks like this. I'm, I'm referring now to the New Testament, okay? But you could say it's true of the Old Testament also. One of these two pictures will hold. One is this, in, in, our, in the context of tonight, in contrast to the page 53 discussion, this will be the Bible, and this will be history. History and the Bible. Those diagrams, called Venn diagrams, are overlapping in one case, right here. Now, the skeptics like to argue that the person Jesus Christ of the New Testament <coughs> is a product of the church. Not a product of history. The Jesus of the Bible, or the charismatic Christ we call him, the Lord Jesus Christ picture that we get from reading the text of the New Testament is strictly a product cranked out by the people called Christians. That's their idea of who Jesus was. But the real Jesus is over here. And we don't really know much about the real Jesus. You know, we only have four Gospels about it. But that's dismissed because we don't have any independent evidence of Jesus. So, there's a split here. Now, the article views history and the Bible overlapping. Remember what if we said? The Bible and the archaeology are in agreement. Whoopee. Now we have a zone where we can be comfortable. This is the comfort zone. And now we can believe, because now archaeology and the Bible talk about the same thing at the same time in the same place. In your notes, if you're taking notes, there are two big points right here. I want to stop forward. I want to make two principles. The first principle so far is... Name one other religion in the world outside of Judaism. Name one other religion in the world that would even be concerned whether it fits history or not. Anybody think of one? Confucius? Confucianism? Do you think Confucianism is critically dependent upon 
the correlation between Confucius' writings and Chinese history? Not at all. Because Confucius is an ethicist. He just tells you right and wrong. What about Hinduism? Is, are, are the Vedas, uh, the, the content of the Vedas as modern Hinduism accepts them, the religious insights of the Vedas, are these really seriously uh, dependent on Indian history? History of man? Not really. Isn't it striking then as it's only the Bible? Only the Bible that is even open to discussion about this question. The rest of them would be just like the top circle here. History can go on. Bible's over there. Good storybook. Hey, want some exciting reading? Read the Bible. But, I mean, you know, we live in the real world. That, that's just make-believe. It's separate and divorced. Now here, the Bible is open to historic criticism. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 15, I'll show you the classic passage. There's other passages in Scripture, the whole Bible is this way, but 1 Corinthians 15 is a rather uh, poignant illustration of this. In 1 Corinthians 15, the topic is what? It's New Testament, it's an epistle, Paul's writing, and what is he talking about? In context. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what is, is the resurrection of Jesus something historical? Or is it something that occurs in the nth dimension, some sort of spiritual transform? Did it occur in a place and time in history? Yeah. Does the Bible insist that it occurs in this time and place of history? Yes, it does. So the Bible is open to history. Now, look at how Paul talks about it. He's talking about verse 2 of chapter 15... I hold fast the word. Verse 3, I delivered unto you the first of all what I received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried. He was raised the third day according to the scriptures. Now, he's relating the event to the scripture. What are the scriptures he means here? Verses 3 and 4? Old Testament. Okay. But then what does he do in verse 5, 6, and 7? Now does he refer to the scriptures? No, he doesn't. What is he referring to? Eyewitness evidence. Historical evidence. So, the Bible is written because, vulnerable to history because it's God speaking in history. The very fact... So, so this, I'm, I'm trying to struggle to state this first principle now. Our faith... Biblical Christianity is unique because it's rooted in a God who speaks into space-time history. That's a very important point. All the other religions could care less what happens in history. It doesn't matter. The Bible says that history does matter because that's the arena in which God spoke said another way, another way of stating this first principle. The Bible speaks of God publicly revealing himself versus God giving thoughts to people's heads inside, subjective. It's an objective, historic revelation of God. If you were there with a tape recorder or a video cassette 
and you sat there at the foot of Mount Sinai, you would have recorded the words of God speaking in Hebrew language. You would have heard them. You talk about a bestseller. Listen to that one. You could have recorded God speaking in Hebrew. Not English. Not Portuguese. At a moment in time, the voice of Almighty God boomed into the history in the Hebrew language. Amazing. And no other religion claims this. So, the very fact that we're even debating the historicity of the scriptures is a sign of something very unique about the Bible. It and it alone believes in a contract. Remember what we said? Albright, down here at Johns Hopkins, father of modern archaeology, what does he say? After studying all the religions of the world, he says that only the Hebrews made contracts with their God. He got it partially right, actually, it was God making contracts with the Hebrews. People always want to know, why are Jews good at business? Well, they've been doing business with God for 20 years, 20 centuries. I mean, they've been, you talk about people like to write a contract up, business contract, and write the fine print. They got the original contract right here. And the contract concerns history. That's why we believe in prophecy. That's why we believe these things all fit together. They have to be. Why do men make contracts? Why do you have a contract with a bank? Or why I should say, when you borrow money, why does the bank have a contract with you? Protect the money. And what is the bank going to do if you don't make payments? They're going to come after you. And what right does the bank have to come after you? Because you broke the contract. So now is the contract relevant to your behavior? You bet you it is. Is this contract then relevant to God's behavior in his story, in the flow of history? You bet. So, right away, the very fact that we're dealing with archaeology and history at all is, a, is a, a sort of a left-handed compliment. Because it testifies that to come to grips with the scriptures, you've got to come to grips with history. And if I have to come to grips with history, I know that I live in history and it's immediately relevant to my life. So, second principle. First one was that biblical faith is a historic faith. It is a public revelation of God. The second principle is that the Bible, therefore, must be studied in the context of history. And now, you see, this is why I've been so insistent when that we look at Scripture, we look at these truths. Notice the diagram again. Features of these diagrams I've shown over and over. There's creation, fall, flood, and covenant. And what am I doing with the truths? I'm linking the truths to what? To history. So that the, what you believe about God, man, and nature is determined by this. Not your opinion, my opinion, or any other one's opinion. The Bible pegs this to this. If this goes away, this goes away. If the fall goes away, the whole biblical idea and treatment of evil goes away. If Noah's flood goes away, the picture of God's judgment salvation goes away. So you can't have doctrinal truth without historical integrity. The two go together. And my contention has been, in our Christian circles, what we have done, unfortunately and unconsciously, not intentionally, but we have raised children 
through sun years and years of Sunday school telling Bible stories as though the Bible story is disconnected from Israel's history or Egyptian history or Assyrian history so that then they go to school, they learn about Assyrian history and the, the Bible is over here. And that's exactly what the secularist wants us Christians to do. That's exactly what they want to do. Take God out of the classroom. Take it, just make him irrelevant. Make the whole thing irrelevant. You can believe that, you Christians. We'll let you believe what you want to believe. But this is real. You, you have your little religious opinions over there. But this is structured public knowledge. No. Sorry, pal. doesn't work that way. The Bible makes historic statements. Okay. Now, in this section, the section on the life of Christ, remember we said, linking again, doctrinal truths to history. What do we say about the life of Christ? Why is it the virgin birth of Christ was denied because people had an unbiblical view of God, man, and nature? Why do people reject the life of Christ? Why do people not like the gospel stories? Why do they insist upon reconstructing a Jesus after their own imagination rather than accept the Jesus of the pages of Scripture? Because they have a problem with the idea of revelation. Because they cannot come to believe that God speaks and acts. Either because they don't think he's there, or if they do believe, he's sort of off in the Milky Way somewhere and doesn't contact planet Earth much. Okay, now we want to come to some of the questions that this article raises. It talks about, just as a catalog of some findings here and there, but then it's always punctuated by remarks like this. Uh, they go on and say, well, we're seeing more of the relationship between the scripture and history. Then they have to deal with cosmology. So after they just got saying that in extraordinary ways, modern archaeology has affirmed the historical core of the Old and New Testaments. This is the historical core of the scriptures. Corroborating key portions, portions, portions of the stories of Israel's patriarchs, the Exodus, the Davidic monarchy, the life and times of Jesus. Where it has faced its toughest task, though, has been in primordial history where many scholars find the traces of human origins obscured in theological myth. Ever since Copernicus overturned the church-sanctioned view of Earth as the center of the universe and Charles Darwin posited random mutation and natural selection as the real creators of human life, the biblical view that in the beginning God created the heavens and the Earth has found itself on the defensive in modern thought. Despite the dominance of Darwin's theory that humans evolved from lower life forms over millions of years, theologians have yielded relatively little ground on what for them is a fundamental doctrine of faith, that the universe is the handiwork of a divine creator who has given humanity a special place in his creation. These apparently conflicting explanations have played a divisive role for centuries. In modern times, the supposed incompatibility of the scientific and religious views of creation has sparked bitter clashes in the nation's courtrooms and classrooms. Often the modern debate has amounted to a little more than a shouting match between extremists on both sides. Then they posit a middle-of-the-road position. Now we're going to interpret the Bible according to Augustine. 
that the days of Genesis weren't really days, they were ages, and we can kind of take the evolutionary theory, we can kind of take the scriptures and put them together. They even quote professors from Christian universities. What have I said? If you want to get unbelief, go to a secular university, the tuition is cheaper. So, they go back to a, a famous church father, Augustine. We want to learn a little bit about this because this will be thrown at you if you make it known that you're a fundamentalist. And uh, we have people in our evangelical circles that are ashamed to stand for the Word of God in many areas. So they'll trot out Augustine. So I want to deal with this because the article for one whole page says that, see, now Augustine, now he was a pretty good guy. He didn't get nasty like these fundamentalists. Augustine tried to work science and history together. I mean, after all, he was a peacemaker. Many divisive fundies all the time. Augustine loved everyone, and he brought the world together here. He brought the Greeks together with the Christians. He brought Neoplatonism along with biblical Christianity. And he concluded that God had just made the universe in seed form, and it later developed by itself, so forth and so on. The problem here is classic. Augustine was very good in some areas. Augustine is looked to by, the, by, after all, aren't our Reformed Protestant roots grounded in Augustine? Of course, in soteriology. But Augustine was a, was a disaster in other areas. His eschatology was pathetic. And his idea of creation was awful. Why? Because Augustine was what philosophers call a Neoplatonist, or at least he was influenced by Neoplatonism. And he utilized that, fearful that the scriptures would not fit into the intellectual climate of his day. He wanted to make the scriptures fit into his Neoplatonism. And the result was he couldn't believe in a physical, literal kingdom of God yet to come, the millennial kingdom. Why is that? Anybody know Greek philosophy? What's the Greek attitude toward material things? They're bad. So if you're going to be spiritual, God's kingdom is going to be spiritual. It can't have material. You can't sit there. People are going to drink wine in God's kingdom. No. Give me a break. It's going to be spiritual. So Augustine couldn't make himself believe all these prophecies about a literal kingdom of God. His Neoplatonism wouldn't allow that to happen. So here we have a man, a church father, who bought into the world system of thinking and let the world system of thinking control his theological beliefs. Thankfully, in at least some areas, he was inconsistent and the Word of God broke through in his thinking. But what we want to do now is we want to review the, the basic structure of the empirical approach. The empirical approach is the idea that I can verify something by observation. We're all taught that in science classes. In fact, modern science, I use it all the time in my work. Direct observations, measurements, and we devise theories from the measurements and so on. So I'm, you know, it's not like I'm new to this stuff. Do it every day. I've been doing it for 35 years. But as a Christian, I have to think through how far I can take the process. How far can I push it? What are the controls on this? As a Christian, as a person who thinks biblically, I have to go back to certain observations and scriptures. And you've seen this, those of you who've been here for over the years, but I'll, I'll reference it again. Here's the dilemma 
of the empirical approach. The person who would approach Scripture and ask whether or not it is true on the basis of observation, be it historical, archaeological observation, will only verify a small area of the Bible. He can only verify where these two intersect. Can you verify the prophecies of the future kingdom by empirical observation? Can you verify the creation account by empirical observation? Let's think about that one. If, the cre if God created the way he created, can you verify it by empirical observations? Let's think about an easy picture. Let's think about you're in the Garden of Eden with your video camera. You are there on the sixth day. You've got your video camera set up. You're an independent observer. And I don't know how the theophany appears, but somehow you see God come and he walks over and he takes this dirt and he builds the body. He blows into it. And there's the man. Now, if you edited the videotape and gave it to your friend, so you cut out the first part until Adam appears. Then you gave your videotape, record of the creation, to Joe over here. And you say, Joe, can you tell me how old Adam is? Well, Joe says, I looked like Adam to me. Bye. He must be 25, 26 minimum. So you're telling me that from the start of that videotape backwards, it's been 26 years. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, look at him. He's a big boy. 26 years old. Now, what, is the, uh, what has Joe done here in this dialogue? He's used the empirical approach. Because every other time he's looked at a person like that, checks out as 26. Problem is, if you get something odd like creation, resurrections, exoduses, global floods, axes floating on water, fish loaves suddenly multiply beyond the giant supermarket contents, and you, you see these things, how do you interpret them? Do you, do you interpret them empirically? On what basis? So let's go back and look at this, and let's take this apart for a minute because we're so prone to do this. So let's, let's be critical. but not the way you normally see it plotted. This represents intervals over which you can observe. This is fine scale intervals, 10 to the minus 18th of a second. Visible light, the sound, one second. Here's, here's one second, one hour, one year, historical period, age of the universe. Now on that scale, what can you observe? Well, what's the quickest event that you can observe with your eyes? In a winking of an eye, in a fraction of a second, and that's about all you can observe. Your eyes are very sloppy observers, by the way, because when you go into a movie theater, you're looking at a blank screen most of the time. Your brain just thinks you're looking at a picture. But actually, it, you're being cheated. You're paying for a whole picture there when it's not on the screen most of the time. It's just a flash, and then the screen goes blank. It's another flash, screen goes blank. Another flash, screen goes blank. And your brain says, oh, gee, look at this nice picture. And it's been looking at a blank screen most of the night.
wonder why you get headaches when you go to theater. But below one second, you really can't see anything. So by direct observation, you can, can't get to the left of this line. Now, what's the greatest and longest event that you can witness, personally? Your lifetime. Okay? So you can't observe anything beyond here. So that's the box. The right side of the box is the limit of your lifetime, and the left side of the box is the limit of your eyeballs. Now let's look at the other way. This is a scale of size, ranging down from subatomic particles up to one centimeter, up to the height of a man, up to uh, ten up to uh, the height of a mountain here, ten to the eighth, up to the sun, distance of the sun, the width of the solar system galaxies. So they're spatial. What's the smallest thing you can, you can see? Well, probably down in the bacteria, uh, the, not quite down to the bacteria, uh, a fraction of a centimeter. Smallest thing you can see. As you get older, you can't see that. Then, as you come up in scale, you can perceive most of the details of a mountain. Get further enough away. So it's kind of fuzzy here. All right, this box is the only place you can directly observe anything. Okay? Everybody agree to that? Anybody got another way of doing it? If you have, you know, stand up and be counted because you're going to be very famous. If you can figure out a way that you can escape the box. Now, what we do is we create instruments. We have a microscope. Microscopes can see smaller and smaller things. Remember Dr. Szymanski? He used to have this neat microscope in his, in his dental office. And sit there and he'd put that probe in your mouth and you could see on TV, he's going, oh, look, bugs running around your mouth. He wanted to convince you that your mouth is the dirtiest part of your body. Um, always helps when you think of kissing somebody. And so the microscope is an area where you extend the per your empirical perception downward. But even a microscope's limited. So you're stopped down here. Ultra-speed filming, you can film high-speed things. Do it at Aberdeen Proving Ground all the time. Uh, watching bullets hit armor plate and fracturing all over the place. So you can see that and verify that by cameras. But you're limited. And so similarly, a telescope is limited. What's the point here? The point is empiricism works generally but not in all cases and particularly does it not work when you get to the boundaries of this perception level so let's review the three areas four areas where where modern thought like this they say oh the bible's theological myths we turn that around and say these are empirical myths what we're taught in school basically in cosmology is an empirical myth it's said to ground in, see what happens is this sleight of hand here. They teach you that the scientific method is great and they demonstrate it. Then they say, but science also says this. No, no. Science doesn't say that. That's a philosophy that has crept into the scientific vocabulary. Okay? So, let's look at these four things and here we want to set forth the principles of the limitations of the empirical approach or the limitations of man's knowledge. On the bottom, you cannot see down into the atom. 
A lot of subatomic particle work in physics is mathematical inference. In fact, some physicists are coming to believe that what they're really dealing with is mathematical debris. In order to make equations balance, you have to introduce terms. You can't really measure the terms, but you have to be there to make the equations work. So some physicists are coming to the conclusion that maybe what we're dealing with is just terms in the mathematical equations. It's just debris. But we can't tell for sure because we can't see for sure. So what, number one, where does empiricism break down? It breaks down in the subatomic region. We have electrons that spontaneously flip one orbit to the next. No reason why that electron moved and this one didn't. Can't figure that out. What is modern physics trying to do? They're trying to say there's intersecting universes, side by side. Now, why are you saying, well, these guys think this up? No, these guys are, are troubled. Because if science is going to work, it's got to have a rationality behind it. So if the rationality isn't available in this universe, that is, we have these chance things that we can't predict, then they must be caused by something else outside of the universe. And we dare not call that, you know, the three-letter word, and we can't utter that one. So we have to say that it must be another universe that intersects with this one and causes these things to happen. Anything but, but G-O-D. Over here, ultra-speed filming. So you can see out to a very quick thing, and then you can't see it anymore. Now, an example of this would be Jesus at the wedding feast. If we had been there with our test tubes and chemical equipment and cameras and had the ability to film what he did with the water, what is the atomic structure of water? H2O. H2O. Is there any carbon atoms in water? What's wine? Now, what kind of stuff did Jesus do with the electrons and protons in the water? He introduced it. He didn't drop a sack of Kool-Aid in there. What caused the wine? Carbon atoms were created instantaneously. Amazing things. And we know enough about chemistry to have an appreciation for what went on there. I mean, he blew the minds of the people that tasted the wine. But if we had been there with all of our chemistry, we'd have said, holy mackerel, how did this happen? You talk about all of a sudden a lot of electrons and protons moved. They sure did. Got carbon atoms now. Now we got wine all of a sudden. We got this organic compound that we never had before. Out of H2O we did this. See? So here's the Lord Jesus doing these miracles down in high speed, down the submicroscopic area. Telescopes, and the most important thing I want to get to tonight is over here. Whenever you, pro whenever you speculate about something that happened when human beings weren't there to visually observe it, you have conjecture. Notice the word, conjecture. Everything is conjecture. Even creationist theories about the flood are conjecture. We conjecture on the basis of Scripture, but it's still in the final analysis conjecture of how God did that. Okay, so the limitations that we said tonight is because all knowledge is limited by our finite capabilities as creatures. Now, for the death blow of all empiricism. Empiricism, your friend who's been to university, he's got his degree, or he or she, and they want to appear very, very educated, 
and very, very um, intellectually impressive, they'll say, well, I won't believe in anything unless I see it tested. So what they're doing is they're saying that all knowledge, watch this now, all knowledge is identical to observed, what is observed. Okay? And if it isn't observed, it's not knowledge. Well, that's interesting. How do you get to this conclusion? This is a proposition about knowledge. Now, follow me. This, you have to screw your heads on here. You're uttering a sentence that says, all knowledge is limited to that which is observed. But where does that sentence come from? Did you get that by observation? No, you didn't. That was an assumption that came into the conversation. So empiricism dies because it can't justify itself. Empiricism never can justify itself because the doctrine of empiricism is an observed thing. You can't observe a doctrine. You can't observe laws of logic. You can't observe these things. They don't smell. You can't measure them at 2.3 centimeters. They're just ideas. They're totally immaterial. So empiricism flounders on this crucial foundation that it can't justify itself. It can't justify logic. It can't justify morals. It can't justify any of the great ideas, and including the idea of empiricism. It's always floundered here. So we want to come back then to what do we do as Christians? What we do is we raise the question to answer the question. The question was, when we started tonight, was, is the Bible true? What we have done, after we get through all of this, is we come down and we ask another question. Is there truth without the Scripture? Or is there any truth, capital T, without the Bible? Can there be truth without the Bible? Because if the Bible isn't there, God hasn't spoken, God is not the creator, then all we have is, is some chemical phenomena in our brains. But that's not truth. That's just chemical phenomena. So if we're going to claim there's truth, we have to have something to base that upon. And we as Christians come back to the fact that we think God's thought. We don't try to generate, as we said before, this diagram that I've shown. We don't try to think like God independently of God. We think God's thoughts after him. So our thoughts are derivative of his thoughts. We believe in truth. But we believe that truth is God's truth first and ours secondarily. And that when it comes to ethics, laws of logic, and the concepts and ideas, they are basically there because God created them. And beginning with the creation and beginning with the authority of the Word of God, then we go forth, and now we'll wind up where we started tonight. Let's go back to Genesis 2. Now we come to the true way we should observe things, where God commissioned us to observe things. In the garden, God fashioned the man, and verse 19... He gives a tremendous empirical authority to man, to you, to me, to the whole human race. 
in verse 19 of Genesis chapter 2, it says, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to man. Now look at this. Purpose clause. Look at the purpose clause. Why did God bring them to man? To see what man would call them. And whatever man called a living creature, that was its name. What delegated authority that is. God is delegating to us as people created in His image the right to go out and study empirically the creation around us and name it, meaning to understand it. That's a, that's a mandate. That's a mandate. Divine mandate. There's the basis for science in Scripture. But it's only after what has taken place before Genesis 2.19. Adam was to name the creatures brought forth to him. But who named light? Light. Was that Adam or was that God? Who named the sea and the earth? Was that Adam or was that God? In other words, you've heard the expression priming the pump. God primed the language machine. God primed knowledge. Then he turns it over to us and say, Creature, I've created this for you. You have a function in this creation that I have made. And I tell you that you are to go out and study this creation. And you are to name it. You are to conquer it. You are to come to conclusions on an empirical basis. But you're going to do so because first you start with the Word of God. In every area, you start with the Word of God. And then you move out, whether it's finances, whether it's business, whether it's whatever. You always start with the Word of God and move from there. Going back to Adam and Eve, the proper place is to listen to what he says. Then go out. And why does you suppose, in, in another little imaginative exercise, why do you suppose God wants us to go out and name animals? Just because he's interested in a zoological book that we can create? He knows the animals. Why do you suppose he has us do that? Why do you suppose he commissions man to go out and observe and draw conclusions? What are we drawing conclusions about as we draw conclusions about the animals? We're drawing conclusions about what? The maker of the animals. And therefore, biblical observation and science and empirical approaches is a form, now this will blow some of your minds, it's a form of worship. It is a form of worship. If you have a hard time connecting your area of specialty, be it whatever, some interest, some hobby of yours. You really haven't got it together scripturally until you can go forward in that hobby or that profession and rejoice in God each day because you're seeing the stuff that you're manipulating. It can be data for people. It can be whatever. But you're manipulating, you're working, you're doing, you're out there naming names. In that is an act of worship as a Christian, walking by faith, in your Father's creation, in His neighborhood. Our Father, we thank You tonight that we can worship as we think. That You have created us with minds built to understand the fantastic truths of creation, of the redemption, of faith. May we be exercised and never once be bored with our existence and claim that we're just uh, tired of life. When life around us is just filled in every place, all around us and in us, with your design.
that all creation is to your glory, and we are to think your thoughts after you. We are to appreciate the truthfulness of Scripture because you are true. And we are to analyze and think and study that Scripture, not with the idea of being independent verifiers of the truth, but we are to study history, to study Scripture, to find more of how you work throughout this creation of yours. May your Holy Spirit open our hearts to these truths. In Christ's name, amen. Tonight, and we'll just, so we can get out of here in uh, 15 minutes or so. Um, let me come down here. And I got everything up there. Uh, yes. Good question. The question is, what about Islam? Um, aren't they linked to history? Yes, they are, but they're linked to history only because of their biblical background. Islam is a, is a kind of an aping of Judeo-Christianity. It's, it's kind of a perverted version. But, but that, yeah, it's related to history. I, mean, I don't know whether you noticed in the news this week that the Inmans in Great Britain have sentenced to death uh, one of the, one of the uh, uh, English playwrights for writing a sacrilegious play about Jesus. And, uh, and uh, I was, oh, well, why are they worried about a sacrificial uh, uh, play against Jesus? Because in Islam, Jesus is a prophet, and he's a prophet of Allah. And so to, to write this demeaning play uh, is, uh, they, he says, they, every, any Islamic nation with a duly instituted judicial system under the Islamic law has the right to kill this, uh, this playwright if he ever sets foot on any of their countries because he is blasphemed. And uh, I thought, well, you know, that's an interesting defender of Jesus. But uh, in any case, um, Islam has a historical thing, but mainly they weaken it because in Islam, the Quran is the final authority and they allow errors in the rest of the Bible because now they rooted in the Quran to go backwards and the Quran can verify the scriptures. So they could be tolerant of errors in the Bible. Now in practice, your Islamic fundamentalists, I'm told, uh, in Islamic countries, they have the same problem in Christian countries, namely that they have all this Islamic governments you hear about, you know, and the terrorists and this and that. Those guys are no more representative of mainstream Islam than the uh, most radical, anti-Semitic, quote, Christian militia group would be uh, related to Christianity. Uh, a lot of them, Islamic countries are run by liberal Islams. They just they give lip service. I, Saddam Hussein's a good example. He could care less about Islam. He just uses it. Like in our culture, politicians use Christianity. So you have to kind of keep that in mind when you hear these guys spout off. They're spouting off for the home choir. That's what they're doing. They could personally care less about Islam. But Islam is suffering much uh, from within itself from liberalism. The academic Islam, Muslim scholars no longer believe a literal genesis. In Turkey 
and some of the other countries, in fact, our creationists have um, gone and given conferences to the fundamentalist Islamics because they're upset of their own liberals. So it's kind of a convoluted thing, uh, what's going on there in Islam. Um, anybody? Yes, George. Do you have anything? Uh, two things. As you were talking about, I'm sure everybody's heard this, this uh, analogy or whatever before, but as you were talking about this framework engulfing things, um, reminds me that somebody was talking this morning on the radio about how the story of the, the man that went to the doctor and claimed that he was dead, and the doctor finally got the right idea to prick his finger and they you know, asked him, well, if he's dead, then leave. And the guy said, well, no, of course they don't. And the doctor pricks his finger, and, and he bleeds. And the doctor, you know, so full of himself, says, see, now what do you think? He says, well, I guess I was wrong with that. And then do bleed. Yeah. You know, it's that. It's yeah, that's a good example. No matter what you come up with, no matter what they just, you know, those change the thing. The other thing that I was thinking was when you were reading that, uh, like in the, the first paragraph or so about the, um, had something to do with the scribes. You, you were talking about the census said something about the scribes. And it struck me that that they don't even believe in the scribes, even though you know there's all this theory on how the scribes went about verifying things and how reliable the copies were and the math that went behind um, you know the scribes as they copied documents and stuff like that. They they even brought into doubt um, not only because they hadn't seen anything, they they discounted the scribes themselves and all the work that had gone into that. That even was right. was invalidated right. until we had some empirical evidence. But see, the reason that happens, the way the college professors will do this in the class and it really screws the students up, they'll say to get the students thinking about this way, they'll say, Well, you've played the game, you take a note or you tell, tell a string of people, and you tell a story to this person, they tell it to the next person, they tell it to the next person, by the time it comes around the room, geez, it's totally screwed up. And, and so they'll do that, see, empirical demonstration. And they'll say, see, you can't have oral tradition or written tradition or anything else transmitted without it getting fouled up. So how can you sit here as Christians and claim the scriptures were preserved? Well, the answer is because we don't treat the scriptures as though they're just another human message. That's, see, it's all, it's all convoluted. That's the very question at hand. Is the scripture the word of God or isn't it? If it is the word of God, then there's a reason, a rationale of why it is inerrant. But, but the argument against the inerrancy of scripture is all founded on the presupposition that the scriptures are of man. Then having made that grand announcement, we treat it just like any other document, Shakespeare, Plato, or somebody else, and we say, see, there are transmission problems there, and so forth and so forth, so there has to be in the Bible. But that's circular reasoning, because that's the whole discussion was in the first place, is the Bible to be categorized in the same genre as Shakespeare and as these other documents? That's the whole point. That's what Adam and Eve did. See, Eve this gets back to that same thing. Satan's proposition and God's proposition are set on an equal plane, and then man comes along and decides which is right. Well, the error is right here. It's not to create a creature distinction. It's being erased at step one in the discussion. So that's why it, I've been fouled up so many times myself in discussing this question of not getting the first step right. 
And, and, and I still don't. Sometimes I get sidetracked. And so you just have to think this through because Satan takes us all for a ride all the time. We, we don't notice we're getting deflected. And the first thing now, we're out in the Tully land somewhere. Or worse, when we're trying to share the gospel with somebody, we're saying, how the heck did we get out here? And you, you feel frustrated at yourself for winding out up. You go, wait a minute, this isn't right. How we keep? And if you trace it back, you'll see that somewhere up at the beginning is where the mistake occurred. Let me give you an example. I listened to a tape um, uh, with a fellow who was discussing with a so-called Christian homosexual the issue of gay rights. I don't like to use the word gay. I think I'll start using the word sodomite. Um, it's a good biblical word, and it's in the dictionary. So it's not a hate term. Uh, look at Webster's Dictionary, you know, blow the dust off of it and open it up once in a while and check. But anyway, he was on this radio, and, the, and the, the, the homosexuals were given the first, you know, on this talk show. They were given the, this guy, two of them. And they said, well, uh, you know, the evangelicals are so hateful. I mean, they just hate us. And, and they're, they're very seriously dangerous people because they're promoting these, these hate crimes and they seize the guy in Wyoming, see. Never mentioning the fact that at least, what, 10, 15 Christian kids have been shot in the last year or so. We don't mention that. Those aren't hate crimes. Um, so they were going on and on and on about the, the, the essence of Christianity is love and grace and accept people. And here you have these sticks in the mud, fundamentalists, nasty people, bitter-spirited, mean-spirited, and always knocking us homosexuals, making us feel like we're second-class citizens and blah, 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 blah. And some of it, frankly, may be true. Maybe we, instead of making the issue what we should, maybe we're not. But that's independent. So this shrewd Christian, uh, I was intrigued now, see, because the whole discussion's been set up for the first three or four minutes of the talk show. So now they, they turn to this guy, thinking they're going to put him on the spot. Well, I had a wonderful step one. He just said, well, what is the issue here? So see, the first thing he did was he didn't buy into the, what the sweep was. Whether, he wasn't defending whether we're loving or mean-spirited. That's what they wanted him to do. They wanted to maneuver him to continue the, the frame of reference that had already been set in motion, see, from the first three or four minutes of the talk show. So what he did, he just stopped cold and said, excuse me, but the issue here is the terms and right of memory. The issue with the, these were Christians in a Christian church. Uh, he said, is the definition of Christian membership. He said, if I were a believer in the free market economy, I would not be accepted in the Communist Party. It has nothing to do with my personality, whether the communists hate me or don't hate me. It's just simply the terms of the joining the Marxist view of econ economics is that you give up your view of the free enterprise system. So this is not discriminating against you as a person. It's just simply what is the standard of membership. And the standard of membership in the Christian church is the Bible. So, then, so with that, say, now where's the discussion going? Well, what does the Bible say? I mean, it was just a shrewd move. I mean, would to God that we could all be that skillful in that situation. But it was wonderful because, see, he moved the discussion over to where it should be. So then they had to. Now, now they're trying to explain their way through Romans 1, Leviticus, and for the next five minutes they were all over the rug. 
uh, and it was great to listen to because he, he moved the discussion over to his ground. And I don't think our evangelism does that a lot. Um, when we get into the death of Christ, you know something, as I've gone through these notes and, and generated notes for you, and you, you asked Wade back four or five weeks ago about animal sacrifice, and that's what we've been covering the last two nights, last two times. You'll see it in the notes. And um, as I went through that, the thought came to me, you know, years ago in this country, when liberalism was in its um, uh, coming out period of the 20s, um, they used to attack what us, the fundamentalists, they used to attack us by saying, you people have a bloody, gory religion. Now, you just can't in the 20th century. I mean, we've gotten, we, we've evolved higher than that. We don't longer worry about bloody religion. We, we've, you know, we, we've got advanced civilization here. We're going to talk about ethics and Jesus and the man and what he can do for us and blah, blah, blah. And you see, this event that we're t studying in the life of Jesus is the cross. Now, the set of notes that just came out tonight, you read in there, what do the liberals have to do with the cross? See, now I've got a problem. See, it's a litmus test. Whatever one does to the cross of Jesus Christ exposes their theology. Because the only people that get it right are the people that are looking for a blood atonement to atone for their sins before a holy God. And if you're not coming to the cross of Jesus Christ with that in mind, what you come out with is, oh, geez, that was a tragedy of history. Jesus was noble. He died for his cause, and that gives me great inspiration, you know? Well, there's a lot of other martyrs died. I mean, during Vietnam, they had Buddhist monks pouring gasoline on themselves and frying themselves in the street. So, I mean, hey, uh, there have been other martyrs. But that's what the cross has to be reduced to in a bloodless religion. It's just, a, it's just an example. Inspiring? Yeah, it's inspiring. But that's all the cross is, is an inspiration. Whereas for us, it's a, it's a, it accomplished something. There was a transaction going on at the cross. So you watch that, and, and it's come out as I've gone through these notes. I remember that. But you don't hear that anymore. And I, you know why I think we don't hear it anymore? Because even in our evangelical circles, the gospel has become seriously compromised. The gospel message comes across as though it's a psychological pill. Accept Jesus because he'll straighten out your life. Accept Jesus because he'll make you feel better. Do you feel depressed? Accept Jesus. See, now some of those things are true. But the problem is that's not the gospel. The gospel isn't a subjective psychological thing. It's a judicial transaction thing. And that never rings a bell. So if someone comes to the gospel thinking of it as a psychological thing, you see the seriousness of that? It means they have never come to grips with sin. Which means they have never come to grips with the holiness of God. Which means they've never come to grips with who God is. So you leave out God and sin, God and holiness and sin, and of course you get it wrong. And this is why I keep on insisting, as you've seen me on these Thursday nights, you've got to go back through the order of Scripture. It takes time. Yes, it takes time. But in a pagan society like we live in, we can no longer assume that Joe's on the street has enough, quote, Scripture floating around the back of his head that he picked up in the bar somewhere. And that, geez, you know, he, he's got it basically right, so all I have to do is just add a few things about accepting Jesus into your heart. No, I don't think so. The average Joe in the street doesn't have a clue what's going on. So, unlike previous, 50 years ago, our parents' generation, who could have witnessed, 
we can no longer witness the way they witnessed because the society is downgraded so far. We've got to go back. Fortunately, we've got to model the whole book of Acts. I mean, Paul went out into a society more pagan than ours, much more pagan than ours. So we have to study how did the apostles preach Christ? And that's why that quote's in there in the first part of this chapter from Leon Morris's book, The Cross of Christ. And what does Leon say? He says that the central theme in the whole New Testament is the cross. Jesus never asked anybody to remember his birthday, but he did ask people to remember his death. So that's the center of the gospel. So what we're coming to, folks, here is the gospel. And when we come to the cross, we're going to see the aberrant, stupid, foolish, sub-biblical ideas of the cross of Jesus. And it's, it's, it's a sad commentary on our times. Yes, Laura. Yeah. Yes. That's a good point, Laura. And I meant to, I had that in my notes that one of the friendly things about the article, actually, is two things. Uh, like Laura said, at least the article has a concept of truth. The problem is they haven't got it justified and, lo and, and relocated correctly. Um, they're not approaching it as saying, gee, the Bible gives you kicks if, it's, if, that's, if that's your thing and it turns you on. Well, gee, read the Bible. Say, now that would be a real contemporary idea of the scriptures. Read it because it turns you on. Uh, at least they're asking, is it true or false? So Laura's right, and that, that's one good thing. The other good thing about it is, is that at least they recognize that the Bible contacts history and that what goes on in history is relevant to the scriptures. So, you know, God bless for that. Because a lot of the liberal critics dismiss the whole historicity of Scripture. Could care less about it. Uh, but one of the dangers that I saw just in the, the title and the subtitle application of that could be, you know, saying extraordinary insight, new discoveries, you know, history, archaeology. For the common person, they're going to see the, that that gives the Bible the impression that um, that unless you've got insight into those areas, yes, you understand history, then no way in the world are you going to be able to pick up that book and understand it. You know, so in, in a way, yeah. it puts distance between the common person. Yeah, another and good the point. Of God. Yes, a very good point, Debbie. Um, what has happened, when you get away from the authority of Scripture, you do a similar thing that the Roman Catholic Church did. You inject a priesthood in between the Scriptures and people. In this case, before it was the old Catholic priesthood. But in this case, who are the priests? The scholars. So now, everybody has to sit in hushed tones to listen to the latest erudite report from the scholars. Because all the rest of us are too stupid to understand the scriptures, we have to wait. On this. And, and you know, the church, my goodness, the church has waited 19 centuries for all this light. What did they do for the last 19 centuries? Poor Apostle Paul, he just didn't have all this extra, extra archaeology. What I find also interesting is how they take it as such a very new thing, because it's my understanding that we've been having an awful 
awful lot of archaeological study validating different parts of scripture and its time and history. Well, suddenly, be, yeah, the article made it appear like this was a sudden new thing, yeah. archaeology, and it really isn't suddenly new. It's probably new to the author, <laughs> but it, was, it hasn't been new. Okay, well, we got to go. Our time's up. And, uh,